is the Neutrino Exploit Kit history and the continuing value of the Wall of Shame website. These stories and more coming up in the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. We begin today's ISMG Security Report with a look at the life and presumed death of the Neutrino Exploit Kit. Joining me is Data Breach Today Executive Editor Matthew Schwartz. Hi, Matt. Hi, Eric. What is or perhaps was the Neutrino Exploit Kit, and is the time right to write the Neutrino Exploit Kit's obituary? Hopefully, we're writing the obituary for the Neutrino Exploit Kit, since it was one of the biggest attack tools that we saw in 2016. Neutrino is an exploit kit, which means that it gives online attackers the ability to easily compromise a large number of computers. What's especially noticeable is that since the beginning of this year, all the attack traffic that is associated with Neutrino has dropped off to nothing. Do we know why? Yes. Now, it hasn't been confirmed, but one security researcher who claims to have talked to the developers behind Neutrino says that they told this researcher that it was simply no longer profitable to be running their service. Like a brick and mortar business, you lose money on a line, shut it down. Yes, the vast majority of hack attacks that we see are profit-driven. It is criminals and increasingly organized crime syndicates getting into attacking people online. For example, to steal their bank account information, to steal payment card data, to steal information about people personally that they can bundle together and sell to other attackers. There's a whole ecosystem associated with what you can steal, what you can sell, and at the end of the day, it's all about profit. Let's go back to when Neutrino was active. How damaging was it? Neutrino was one of the most seen exploit kits, and it was tied to various types of attacks. In terms of a dollar figure, I can't give you that, but it was extremely prevalent and thus extremely damaging. For example, the authors behind it in the middle of 2016 began charging $7,000 a month to anyone who wanted to use it. Now, that gives you an indication that obviously anybody using it is going to be clearing at least $7,000 a month presumably some factor above that to make them want to use this exploit kit. The exploit kit's been tied to malvertising attacks. So that's where fake advertisements get injected into websites and can hit people with malware. It's also been tied to ransomware attacks, meaning that it can be flinging malware at PCs that encrypts them and then demands a ransom. In theory, at least, the various attackers who were renting this exploit kit and making use of it were earning some sizable profits. Do we know who these attackers were? No, there's no indication of who the attackers are. The exploit kit itself has been advertised on Russian underground cybercrime forums, but that in and of itself is no smoking gun as to who is behind it. This underworld is a for-profit marketplace. Uh, Who's stepping in? Well, it's a thriving ecosystem. It long has been and presumably it long will be. Before Neutrino, there were other exploit kits. Angler, for example. And when that failed, probably because of some Russian government arrests last year, Neutrino stepped into the gap. One of Neutrino's big competitors has been RIG, R-I-G, another exploit kit that offers similar functionality. Security experts tell me that RIG is the big dominant player. How similar is RIG to Neutrino? 
Functionally speaking, a lot of these exploit kits are very similar. They will typically be used to infect a website with attack code. When you or I or someone using a browser gets lured to that website, the website will probe their browser for known weaknesses. It's typically looking for Adobe Reader, Java Runtime, Adobe Flash Player. And if it finds an outdated version, it'll pummel all of the known vulnerabilities in that software. And if it's successful, it will use those flaws to push an installer or a malware dropper onto the system. And then if that's successful, it'll start to pull down additional malware. At that point, attackers can install ransomware, install a keystroker, try to exfiltrate people's bank account details, anything they can think of they can potentially do to that endpoint once it's infected. And there will be more. More exploits on the way. And so long as these easily exploitable flaws continue, it gives attackers a really easy target for owning lots and lots of PCs using these highly automated, easy to use, no computer science degree required exploit kits. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Eric. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Should the Department of Health and Human Services so-called Wall of Shame website be eliminated? To address that question, I'm joined by Healthcare Info Security Executive Editor, Marianne Kolbasak-McGee. Hi, Marianne. Hi, Eric. What is the Wall of Shame? For starters, the Wall of Shame name is more of a nickname that journalists and others have given it. But basically, in 2009, Congress enacted the High Tech Act to promote the adoption and meaningful use of health information technology. One of the law's provisions directed the department's Office for Civil Rights to operate a website to track breaches affecting 500 or more individuals. The website includes brief summaries of the breach cases that the Office for Civil Rights has investigated and closed. The wall lists nearly 2,000 breaches that have occurred over the past half dozen years. Those breaches have affected more than 173 million individuals. It seems that these organizations take corrective action to prevent similar breaches in the future. They remain on the wall of shame, it seems, forever. That bothers some people. Republican Representative Michael Burgess of Texas chairs the House Energy and Commerce Subcommittee on Health. Here's Burgess speaking at a House hearing earlier this month. What concerns me is this thing's been out there. The first infraction was October of 2009. It's still up there. A facility in Texas, yeah. And you reach the threshold of 500 uh, charts or whatever affected, and you're up there. Does it affect their ability to stay in business? I don't know what kind of follow-up there's been done on whether or not uh, access to capital has been limited because they appear on the Office of Civil Rights Wall of Shame and Department of Health and Human Services. I can just imagine that that is a big deal. And again, we're victimizing the victim again. Why wouldn't we be helping people rather than continuing to penalize them? Burgess raises a legitimate question. Does Health and Human Services have an answer? Leo Scanlon is HHS Deputy Chief Information Security Officer, and he testified at that hearing. Scanlon has heard Burgess's concerns before, and he told Burgess that HHS Secretary Tom Price is reevaluating the HHS breach reporting website. So we heard you uh, loud and clear at that hearing, and uh, we took that matter back to the secretary. Uh, He has taken it uh, very seriously and is working on an effort to address the concerns that you raised. Uh, We'd like to get back to you uh, in in more detail. The the work is not complete, but it is underway. Is that something that can simply be taken care of within the agency? Yes, sir. 
Scanlon contends HHS helps healthcare entities strengthen their cybersecurity. He told Burgess that the HHS encourages healthcare organizations to adopt the government's cybersecurity framework that emphasizes a risk-based approach to IT security. So, Marianne, should the wall of shame disappear? Many privacy and breach experts want the website to continue without being drastically altered. Some suggest tweaks, such as limiting the length of time breaches are listed. Others like the site as it is, saying it provides valuable insights into security mistakes other healthcare entities should avoid. Thanks, Marianne. You're welcome, Eric. Finally, the biggest inhibition to information sharing between the public and private sector is the overclassification of information by the government. That's Gregory Tuhill, who served until January 20th as the first and so far only United States Chief Information Security Officer. Many of those responsible for securing IT for American businesses lack the security clearances needed to view government cyber threat information that's classified. Before being tapped last year by President Barack Obama as federal CISO, the retired Air Force Brigadier General served as director of the Department of Homeland Security's National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center. One of the missions of NCIC, as the center is known, is to share cyber threat information with the private sector. But the labeling of some of that information is classified, and that limits cyber threat information sharing. Tuhel is among a large segment of the security community who believes that the government overclassifies information and should rethink how it does so. If we change that default setting for how we share information, Instead of automatically classifying everything top secret SCI and then going through the bureaucratic hassle of declassifying, which can take years in some cases, I think we really need to give a, a little poke to the intelligence community and say, all right, guys, your default is actually going to be shareable through some of the programs like our CISP, the Critical Infrastructure Cyber Collaboration and Sharing Program. Got to go be able to share. And then they have to justify why they can't share that information. I think there's a case to be made that we need to look more at that and ask the intelligence community, how can we do better in getting the information you provide within the government out to the critical infrastructure providers? That's former U.S. CISO Gregory Tuhill. And you've been listening to the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time. Thank you.